Hello and welcome to Byzantium and the Crusades. My name is Nick Holmes and with this episode we move on to another key part of the story of the Crusades, one that's probably the best known and most popular bit of crusading history. That is of course the Third Crusade. Now the reason we've got so many films and books about the Third Crusade is that it contains two of the most famous figures in the whole of medieval history who are firstly Saladin, the great Islamic leader who defeated the Crusaders at the Battle of Hattin in 1187 as you've heard and and recaptured Jerusalem. And secondly, Richard the Lionheart, King of England, who became a crusader and vowed to defeat Saladin, as you'll hear. One of the reasons that has made the Third Crusade so appealing in popular history is the unexpected bond of mutual respect and almost friendship that developed between Saladin and Richard the Lionheart. Another reason is that it's central to the legend of the English outlaw called Robin Hood, who figures so prominently in English folklore as Richard the Lionheart's loyal supporter hiding in Sherwood Forest and opposing Richard's evil brother Prince John while Richard is fighting Saladin with his company of likeable rogues like Friar Tuck and Little John and of course with his beautiful and feisty girlfriend Maid Marian Robin Hood has become a staple of countless Hollywood films so there are lots of romantic and exciting stories that have been made up about this bit of the Crusades but in this podcast we'll focus on the real history of what actually happened. And we'll start in this first episode on the Third Crusade with the reaction in the West to the fall of Jerusalem in 1187. As before, I'll read extracts from my adapted version of Sir Stephen Runciman's brilliant History of the Crusades. Hope you enjoy it. Bad news travels fast. The Battle of Hattin had hardly been fought and lost before messengers hurried westward to inform the princes of Europe, and they were soon followed by others telling of the fall of Jerusalem. Western Christendom learned of the disasters with consternation. In spite of all the appeals that had come from the Kingdom of Jerusalem in recent years, no one in the West, except perhaps at the Papal Court, had realised the urgency of the danger. The knights and pilgrims that had journeyed eastward had found in the Crusader states a life more luxurious than any that they had known at home. They heard tales of military prowess, they saw commerce flourishing, they could not comprehend how precarious was all this prosperity. Now suddenly they heard that it was all ended. The Christian army had been destroyed, the Holy Cross, most sacred of the relics of Christendom, was in the hands of the infidel, and Jerusalem itself was taken. In the space of a few months the whole edifice of the Crusader East had collapsed, and if anything was to be rescued from the ruins, help must be sent and sent quickly. The refugees who had survived the disaster were crowded together behind the walls of Tyre, their courage maintained by the ruthless energy of Conrad of Montferrat. 
the lucky chance of his arrival had saved the city from surrendering, and one by one the lords that had escaped from Saladin's clutches joined him there, gratefully accepting his leadership. But they all knew that without assistance from the West, their chances of holding Tyre were small, and their chances of recovering lost land were none at all. In the lull that followed Saladin's first attack on Tyre, when he passed on to conquer northern Syria, they had sent the most revered of their colleagues, Josias, Archbishop of the city, to tell the Pope and the kings of the West in person how desperate was their need. About the same time, the survivors amongst the military orders wrote round to impress upon their Western brothers the same anxious story. The Archbishop set sail from Tyre in the late summer of 1187 and arrived after a swift voyage at the court of King William II of Sicily. He found the king deeply distressed by rumours of the disaster. When he learned of its full extent, William dressed himself in sackcloth and went into retreat for four days. Then he wrote to his fellow monarchs to urge them to join a crusade and himself prepared to send as soon as possible an expedition to the east. He had, however, a war with Byzantium on his hands. In 1185, his troops had attempted to capture the Byzantine city of Thessalonica and had been heavily defeated, but his fleet was still cruising in Cypriot waters, giving help to the Byzantine usurper Isaac Comnenus in his revolt against the Emperor Isaac Angelus. Peace was hastily made with the Byzantine Emperor and the Sicilian Admiral Margaritus of Brindisi was summoned home to refit his ships and sail with 300 knights to Tripoli. Meanwhile, Archbishop Josias, escorted by a Sicilian embassy, made his way to Rome. There, too, the gravity of his news was understood, for the Genoese had already sent a report to the papal court. The old Pope, Urban III, was a sick man, and the shock of the fall of Jerusalem was too much for him. He died of grief on the 20th of October. But his successor, Gregory VIII, at once sent out a circular letter to all the faithful of the West. He told the serious story of the loss of the Holy Land and of the Holy Cross. He reminded his readers that the loss of Edessa 40 years before should have been a warning. Great exertions were needed now. Let everyone repent from his sins and let up treasure in heaven by taking the cross. He promised a plenary indulgence to all crusaders. They should enjoy eternal life in heaven, and in the meantime their goods on earth would be under the protection of the Holy See. He finished his letter by ordaining a fast on every Friday for five years to come, and abstinence from meat on Wednesdays and Saturdays. His own kinsfolk and those of his cardinals would fast on Mondays also. Other messages sent from Rome begged for a truce for seven years on all the princes of Christendom, and it was reported that the cardinals had all sworn to be among the first to take the cross. As mendicant preachers, they would lead the Christian armies to Palestine. Pope Gregory did not see the result of his efforts. He died at Pisa on the 17th of December after a pontificate of two months, leaving the work to the Bishop of Prineste, who was elected two days later as Pope Clement III. While Clement hastened to make contact with the greatest potentate of the West, the German Emperor Frederick Barbarossa, the Archbishop of Tyre moved on over the Alps to see the kings of France 
and England. The news of his mission had gone before him. The aged patriarch of Antioch, Amory, wrote a letter in September to King Henry II of England to tell him of the tribulations of the Crusader East and sent it by the hand of the Bishop of Banyas. And before Josias of Tyre had arrived in France, Henry's eldest surviving son, Richard, Count of Poitou, had taken the cross himself. Henry had for many years been carrying on a desultory war with Philip Augustus of France in January 1188. Josias found the two kings at Gisors on the frontier between Normandy and the French domain, where they had met to discuss a truce. His eloquence persuaded them to make peace and promise to go as soon as possible on a crusade. Philip, Count of Flanders, ashamed perhaps of his abortive crusade ten years before, hastened to follow their example and many of the high nobility of both kingdoms swore to accompany the kings. It was decided that the armies should march together, the French troops wearing red crosses, the English white and the Flemish green. To pay for the expedition, both kings raised special taxes. At the end of January, King Henry's council assembled at Le Mans to order the payment of the Saladin tithe, a 10% tax on revenue and movables to be collected from every lay subject of the king in England. England and in France. Henry then crossed to England to make further arrangements for the crusade, which was preached with fervour by Baldwin, Archbishop of Canterbury. The Archbishop of Tyre started back on his homeward journey full of hope. Soon after the conference at Gisors, Henry wrote an answer to the Patriarch of Antioch to say that help was coming quickly. His optimism was not, however, justified. The Saladin tithe was collected satisfactorily in spite of the attempt of a Templar knight, Gilbert of Hoxton, to help himself to the money that he had collected, while William the Lion, King of the Scots, who was Henry's vassal, was quite unable to persuade his thrifty barons to contribute a single penny. Plans were made for the government of the country while Henry and his heir should be in the east, but long before the army could be assembled, war broke out again in France. Some of Richard's vassals rebelled against him in Poitou, and in June 1188 he was involved in a quarrel with the Count of Toulouse. The French king, angry at this attack on his vassal, answered by invading Berry. Henry, in his turn, invaded Philip's territory and war dragged on through the summer and autumn. In January 1189, Richard, whose filial loyalty was inconstant, joined with Philip in an offensive against Henry. The endless fighting horrified most good Christians. Among Philip's vassals, the Counts of Flanders and Blois refused to bear arms until the crusade should be launched. In the autumn of 1188, the Pope had sent the Bishop of Albano and after the Bishop's death next spring, Cardinal John of Agnagni to order the kings to make peace, but in vain. Nor was Baldwin, Archbishop of Canterbury, more successful. Throughout the early summer, Philip and Richard penetrated successfully into Henry's French possessions. On the 3rd of July, Philip took the great fortress of Tours, and next day, Henry, who was now desperately ill, agreed to humiliating peace terms. Two days later, before they could be ratified on the 6th of July, he died at Chinon. 
The old king's disappearance eased the situation. It's doubtful whether he ever seriously saw himself leaving for the crusade, but his heir, Richard, had every intention of fulfilling his vow, and though he inevitably inherited his father's quarrel with the French king Philip, he was ready to make any settlement that would leave him free to go to the east, particularly if Philip would join in the crusade also. Philip, for his part, had less awe of Richard than of Henry, and saw that it was bad policy to postpone the crusade much longer. A treaty, therefore, was hastily made, and Richard passed on into England to be crowned and to take over the government. The coronation took place on the 3rd of September at Westminster, and was followed by a lively persecution of the Jews in London and in York. The citizens were jealous of the favours shown them by the late king, and crusading fervour always provided an excuse for killing God's enemies. Richard punished the rioters and permitted a Jew who had turned Christian to avoid death to return to his faith. The chroniclers were shocked to learn of Archbishop Baldwin's comment that if he would not be God's man, he had better be the devil's. The king stayed on in England over the autumn, reorganising his administration. Empty Episcopal sees were filled after some preliminary rearrangement. William Longchamp, Bishop of Ely, was made Chancellor and Justicia for the south of England, while Hugh, Bishop of Durham, was Justicia for the north, but also Constable of Windsor. The Queen Mother, Eleanor, was given vice-regal powers, but she didn't intend to remain in England. The King's brother, John, was enfiefed with huge estates in the southwest, and a prudent ban on his entry into England for three years was rashly withdrawn. Royal estates were sold to raise money. The proceeds, together with gifts and the Saladin tithe, provided the King with a vast treasure, and William of Scotland sent £10,000 in return for his release from allegiance to the English crown and the restoration of his towns of Berwick and Roxburgh, which he had lost in Henry's reign. In November, Rothrud, Count of Perche, arrived from France to say that King Philip had almost completed his preparation for the crusade and wished to meet Richard at Vézelay on the 1st of April when they would discuss their joint departure. A letter had reached the French court at the end of 1188 from its agents at Byzantine Constantinople telling of a prophecy by the holy hermit Daniel that in the year when the feast of the Annunciation fell on Easter Sunday that the Franks would recover the Holy Land. This conjunction would happen in 1190. The report added that Saladin was troubled by quarrels among his own family and his allies, even though the Byzantine Emperor Isaac was impiously aiding him, and it mentioned a rumour that Saladin himself had been severely defeated near Antioch. News reaching France next year was not quite so optimistic, but it was learnt that thanks to Sicilian help, the crusaders there were taking the offensive. Moreover, the German Western Emperor Frederick Barbarossa was already on his way to the east. It was time for the kings of France and England to set out. After taking the advice of his council, King Richard agreed to the meeting at Vézelay. He was back in Normandy by Christmas and preparing himself to set out for Palestine in the late spring. At the last moment, everything had to be postponed. Owing to the sudden death of the Queen of France, Isabella of Hainaut, 
early in March. It was not until the 4th of July that the kings met again at Vézelay with their knights and their infantry ready to set out on their holy enterprise. It was three years now since the Kingdom of Jerusalem had met with disaster at Hattin and it was well for the crusaders in the east that other crusaders had not been so dilatory. The promptness of King William of Sicily's help saved Tyre and Tripoli for Christendom. William died on the 18th of November 1189 and his successor Tancred had troubles to face at home but already in September an armada of Danish and Flemish ships estimated by the hopeful chroniclers to number 500 arrived off the Syrian coast and about the same time came James Lord of Aven the bravest knight of Flanders. Even the English had not all waited for their king to move. A flotilla manned by Londoners left the Thames in August and reached Portugal next month. There, like their compatriots some 40 years before, they agreed to take temporary service under the Portuguese king, and thanks to their help, King Sancho was able to capture from Islam the fortress of Silves, east of Cape Saint-Vincent. On Michaelmas Day, the Londoners sailed on through the Straits of Gibraltar, but by far the most powerful force that had already started out for the Holy Land was the army of the German Emperor Frederick Barbarossa. Frederick had been deeply moved to hear of the disasters in Palestine ever since he'd returned with his uncle Conrad from the ill-fated Second Crusade. He'd longed to do battle again with the infidel. He was now an old man, nearly in his 70th year, and he'd been ruler of Germany for 35 years. However, age had not diminished his gallantry nor his charm, but many bitter experiences had taught him prudence. He had not had many personal connections with Palestine. Very few of the settlers there were of German origin, and his long controversy with the papacy had made the Frankish government shy of asking for his help. But the House of Montferrat had always been among his supporters. News of Conrad's gallant defence of Tyre may have stirred him. The recent marriage of his heir, Henry, with the Sicilian princess Constance, had brought him into close touch with the Normans of the South. The death of Pope Urban III in the autumn of 1187 enabled him to make his peace with Rome. Gregory VIII eagerly welcomed so valuable an ally for the rescue of Christendom, and Clement III was equally friendly. Frederick took the cross at Mainz on the 27th of March 1188 from the hands of the Cardinal of Albano, but more than a year passed before he was ready to leave for the east. The regency over his domains was given to his son, the future Henry VI. His great rival in Germany, Henry the Lion of Saxony, was ordered either to cede his rights over part of his lands or to accompany the crusade at his own expense or to go into exile for three years, and he chose the last alternative, retiring to the court of his father-in-law, Henry the Second of England. Thanks to papal sympathy, the German church was pacified after a long series of quarrels. The western frontier of Germany was strengthened by the creation of a new margravate. While he collected together his army, Frederick wrote to the potentates throughout whose lands he would pass, the King of Hungary, the Byzantine Emperor Isaac Angelus, and also the Seljuk Turkish Sultan Kilij Arslan. And he sent an ambassador, Henry of Dietz, with a boastful letter to Saladin demanding 
demanding the restoration of all Palestine to the Christians and challenging him to battle on the field of Zoan in November 1189. The King of Hungary and the Seljuk Sultan replied with messages promising assistance. A Byzantine embassy also arrived at Nuremberg in the course of 1188 to arrange details for the Crusaders' passage through Byzantine territory. But Saladin's reply, although courteous, was haughty. He offered to release his Crusader prisoners and to restore the Latin abbeys in Palestine to their owners, but no more. Otherwise, he said, there must be war. And war was precisely what the Emperor Frederick wanted. The great counterattack from the West, later known as the Third Crusade, had begun. And that ends this episode. Hope you enjoyed it. As always, I'd be hugely grateful if you left any ratings on the podcast. Thank you so much. And so what happened to Frederick Barbarossa? Could the Third Crusade defeat Saladin? Find out in the next episode scheduled for Saturday, the 2nd of January. And in the meantime, thank you very much for listening and happy holidays.